Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I am your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we talk with Garrett Heath, a professional runner for Brooks. Garrett's demonstrated impressive range over the last couple of decades, and with world-class PRs and events from the 1500 to the 10K, Garrett has been a threat every time he steps on a start line. As a three-time champion of the famed Edinburgh cross-country race, his gutsy racing style has carried him to victory over some of the world's most legendary runners, including Mo Farah. I reached out to Garrett a couple of weeks ago after seeing his announcement that he was making the switch to trail running. Maybe it's up for debate, but in my mind, he is the highest level track athlete to ever cross over to our sport. The dude is legit. In this conversation, we cover all the basics, what motivated him to make the change, why now, whether he'll be coached, who his training partners will be, what his race schedule looks like in 2022. And given his background with the famed Brooks Beast training group in Seattle, we also have a long back and forth about what it would take to build a similar type of team in the ultra world. We get his perspective on being a full-time runner, the pros and cons of the lifestyle, whether he recommends it. And we talk about perceptions of our trail and ultra running world outside of the bubble and what it would take to recruit more pro athletes like Garrett into the sport. Let's get started. Garrett Heath, welcome to the Single Track Podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I consider myself to be a super fan of trail running and I'm always watching the news and on Instagram, maybe a couple of weeks back, I saw you make a post that to some extent you were getting involved in the trail scene and you have this, I'll, I'll use the word illustrious track and field and cross country and road career. So because this is primarily a trail running audience, a mountain ultra trail running audience, could you just give a bit of your background in the track and field world and the road world and your time with Brooks Beasts, for example? Yeah. Um, I guess starting a little before the beasts, like I ran in college at Stanford and then stayed around there post-collegially. I think my best college stuff was uh, we won the DMR in college and I was a traditionally a 5k guy that forced my way down to the mile, ran a lot of the mile in 1500 and then finished second in the 1500 at NCAAs one year outdoors and then went to Saucony actually for about four years, ran for them. Uh, on my own, doing a little bit of my own thing, training with the Stanford team. And then since then moved up to Seattle and joined the Brooks Beast. Um, great to just have a team again and, you know, feel like you're back in those college vibes a little bit of just, you know, having people around you working towards some of the same goals all the time. And uh, yeah, slowly went from my time here being a 1500 mile sort of guy to moving up to like the 5k and most recently dabbling more into the 10k. Uh, and, you know, I guess probably biggest accolades are, you know, I think the one that most people know of that probably relates most uh, specifically to the trail audience is cross country winning the great Edinburgh uh, XC race three times and a few kind of big names in there of like Mo Farah, Asbel Kiprop, Bukili, you know, so a bunch of legends that like, you know, I've always looked up to. So it was just really neat to be a part of that race. And then, yeah, some, you know, good track stuff along the way too in the, in the 5k mainly most recently. So we will make sure to link to it in the show notes, but there's this great YouTube video. I think it must be the final quarter mile, half mile of that Edinburgh race where I think you're out kicking Mo Farah to win it. Maybe it was 2016-ish and just really cool video. And I think it encapsulates how cool that sport is too. So we'll make sure to link that. But I guess my first question is, why are you getting into trails now? What was the uh, motivation there? Yeah, like our family always grew up going to Colorado in the summers, even back in like middle school, high school, going to like the basically the Frisco or... Buena Vista, Salida sort of areas up in the mountains. And it's, you know, you're basically somewhere between eight to 9,000 feet there and, you know, not doing like training camps necessarily or anything like that, specifically at a young age, but like, you know, just hiking a ton, family biked a lot. As I got older, like Elliot and my younger brother and I did more running and stuff like that. But yeah, I think just like this passion for the mountains developed from there. And so I've always had a bit of an eye on like, you know, the trail world and what's happening there. My college roommate is actually uh, Chris Mako, who's a, a well-known guy in the trail world. Legend. Show. 
And so like, you know, through following him and going to, you know, Western States to track him there, I've both been just like very, very intrigued in the trail world. And also like a bit scared of some of the, the long stuff that, that people undertake uh, and just, you know, mind blown by some of the races. So, yeah. And I'm sure we'll get into the details of exactly what you plan to do this year and years to come. But given that you've been closely associated with Chris Mako, for example, for I'm guessing over a decade is the really long distance stuff like the ultra scene. Does that appeal to you to any extent? No, not to start out with anyway, you know, like maybe there's, I'm going to, I'm going to start shorter and see where this goes, but you know, I mean, seeing some of what he's done and just, I think what generally the trail world has, uh, you know, I used to cross country ski back in high school and, uh, Courtney DeWalter was, uh, a year different from me also was a cross country skier runner from Minnesota. And so I followed Courtney a lot, like, you know, I hadn't, you know, we hadn't stayed in great touch since like high school, but obviously she's like, uh, an epic star on the, the trail scene. So it's been, you know, super fun to just follow along with her success. And, you know, I think I'm like, uh very like very inspired and just blown away by what they're doing but don't see myself as far as like some of those like 100 mile 200 plus mile sort of races or anything like that at this point this is going to be a super basic question because i'm just so far removed from these other areas of running but with that edinburgh race for example and that course in particular were you training on terrain and on courses that would be similar to the training that you anticipate for races like in this world now. What was like the profile of that Edinburgh course look like, for example? There's a lot of vert for like a track runner, but for uh, a trail runner, there's pretty much zero vert. There's a couple of what you would call like maybe mole hills uh, for any trail runner, but there's yeah, I think the big thing with that was like I think the conditions were very muddy. Uh, so, you know, it's run on grass, like it's, uh, it was snowy or rainy and cold a couple of the years. And yeah, you do just get a bit more undulation, like in the, you got, you run on some side Hills, like mm. it's not just, you know, for coming from the track world where like, everything is like incredibly manicured all the time. And like, you know, I've been very high maintenance for the past, whatever, 10, 12 years or longer of just like, Hey, if it's not like a groomed gravel trail like i'm probably not running off road and so like yeah there is a little bit but like compared to what you know most trail athletes would consider a trail this probably wouldn't even qualify for that so okay and then why now like you it it sounds like this has been something that you've been interested in for a while now but it's 2022 what prompted being this year as the year you like dive deeper into it yeah, uh, I talked about it a little bit with Brooks for the last couple of years now as a potential, as a possibility, you know, coming off basically like the 2020 trials was my focus, you know, which then pushed back to 2021. But, you know, I just felt like, I, you know, I was always intrigued by the trails, but I felt like there was still something that I, there was some unfinished business on the track, you know? And so like, I really wanted to see where I could take that before stepping onto the next thing. And, you know, felt like the Olympic trials was a good end to that last year. And, you know, so I had some time coming off of that where, you know, talked with Brooks, talked to um, my family, talked to my coach, you know, and just at that point was like, Hey, I think like I'm ready for something new. And I think the trails are, you know, I think they're booming, you know, the trail scene in general is growing pretty dramatically. And so like, I was like, yeah, let's give it a go. And it could be a complete epic failure, but let's, you know, let's have some fun with it. What does your schedule look like for this year so far? It's a good question. I, uh, so I, I just spent like the last, like last couple of weeks, I've been trying to like sift through everything and, you know, like it's hard. Cause like, you know, in the trail world, there's so many races, whereas like in the track professional track world, it's like, I was talking to somebody the other day and it's like, there's, you know, two good 10 Ks in the U S every year, if you're lucky. So like, if you're a 10 K guy, it's like, your options are pretty clear. Like either 
you're doing, you know, the sound running 10 K or you're maybe running a 10 K at like Prefontaine. And other than that, like you're not running 10 K. So like, whereas like then I was looking at the trail calendar the other day and it's like, there's 10, 10 races on any given weekend. And so I guess for me right now, like I've gotten a, I've got two or three kind of potentially pegged for late April, early May, and then June. And I don't know, you know, I just don't know if I'm biting off more than I can chew or like what, you know, I guess if I'm going to a race that like people are going to be like, that's not like no one goes to that race. That's not (laughs) like, that's not a trail race. Or if it's like, Hey, this is, you're so far over your head that, uh, you know, it'll just be hanging on as best I can middle of the pack. So, um, yeah, no, nothing for sure yet. I did send it over to Chris Mako actually a couple of days ago and just say, Hey, can you take a look through this and see how crazy some of this sounds? So what are some of the names on the potential list? I think, you know, probably the ones that stick out the most one is there's, and I can't remember if it's, it's the exact name, but it's Canyon something yep. in uh, California there. Uh, it's out of Auburn. Yes. The 25 K or the 50 K the 25 K I think would be the ultimate starting place for me. And then there's a, I've heard a lot of good things about I'm blanking on the other one that's in Lake Tahoe. It's, I think it's like one of the big, Oh, uh, broken arrow, broken arrow. And then there's one or two others. There's one in at sun mountain out here in Washington. Uh, It's a little bit smaller one. And yeah, a couple others in there that like on the radar, but honestly, like I just keep looking for feedback from anyone that has any idea or like, you know, people that are experienced in this world so that, you know, I'm not uh, going too astray for these first couple. One of the cool things about canyons, uh, there's three events there, the 100K, the 50K and the 25K. And the 100K is a golden ticket race for Western states in June, which is like the crown jewel ultra here in, in the trail running community. And so you'll get like a great, in addition to a great racing experience and a great course, there's just a lot of fanfare around it. And there'll be like fans of the sport showing up to follow along, which is cool too. So mm-hmm. as far as like crowds and cheering goes and trail running, it's a good taste of it. Same with Broken Arrow. I mean, all of those from like a viewership standpoint are great in addition to the athlete experience. So that sounds cool to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited just to get in the atmosphere of it and see like how it works. I'm actually planning to go up to Chuck Nut, uh, to the 50 K here next or like in a week and a half now just to watch. And there's a few Brooks athletes going and a few, you know, kind of part of the company just going to go up and watch. So I'm excited just to see what's, <laughs> what sort of suffering is happening out there and, uh, just kind take some of it in so i know i can start building some of my expectations mentally i think you're picking all the right races to to spectate and to take part in i mean chuck and that is great too the race director for it is excellent chrissy mole and uh, the course is amazing too and that's awesome i'm trying to think what else here do you have a coach for all this like i think one thing i'm curious about is obviously you had a certain regimen on the track and on the roads and in cross country, does anything change from like the standpoint of who you get coached by and who you surround yourself with in terms of training partners and stuff like that? Yeah, I think it's been a complete overhaul basically for me. Very dramatic change. I mean, like I, you know, be from being fully immersed in the track world and being with our, the Brooks beast team here, like where we had, you know, I still connect, with those guys a bit and we'll try to like meet up with you know both the men and women for some runs and stuff here and there and i actually hope to this spring do some workouts with them but like for the most part like they're you know they're doing their own thing they're going to albuquerque training up there and you know obviously they have to be honed in for indoor track and yeah the outdoor track season is very specific and with the trail stuff it's been a lot more kind of bit of a hodgepodge of like just running with different people been trying to start meet up with there's a group here in seattle brian bark is one of the brooks um shoe trail footwear designers as well as like a couple others who are in the area you know we have like adam fry and Ladia albertson or 
uh, and uh, Joe McConaughey. Yes. And, uh, yes. It's like, it's a very, it's a good group. And so I've just been trying to like meet up with them as much as I possibly can for runs and just pick their brains and get some of the wisdom of what's normal, what's crazy. And we actually, you know, we hit, I went out to meet up with them yesterday thinking that we were going to go on like an hour run. Just <laughs> we went for like an hour and 35 minutes, you know, like a Wednesday morning. And I was like, Phew, like this is like a <laughs> midweek long run. <laughs> like uh, I maybe went a little hard yesterday for this, but it's like, you know, it wasn't anything super hard. It was just cruising. And so it's just, a, it's a different sort of train, but yeah, I guess specifically to answer your question about coaching, like right now I'm just doing my own thing. I think I'm going to, you know, pick the brain of like Joe a bit. I know he does some coaching in the trail world. Also Adam Chase is a guy that like, uh, you know, he'd offered help out. So I'll probably try to like get some advice from him. But other than that, like, honestly, I'm just like excited for a bit of like change of mind frame and also just like, uh, you know, having a little bit less structure than the track was where it was like, I think if you miss a run or you miss an interval or you have to push something back or like one little thing is off when you're training on the track, sometimes it can feel like you've blown the race, you know, like there goes, really, it's like a month from now. Whereas like, I think, and maybe like my mindset is just not fully attuned to the trail yet, but I, you know, I get the the feeling that it's a bit more with some of the longer stuff that, you know, it's not about like milliseconds at the line that might separate first and second. It's like, there's so much that happens out there that it like, you get the understanding that like, Hey, one wrong step isn't going to throw off my whole race, you know, whereas as the track, it is down to the micro, you know, fractions of a second and so you do tend to overthink things more so that's something i had never considered whether there are more second and third chances in a training block when you're getting ready for an ultra or just trails in general versus the roads and on the track because like you said thing, the, the finishing times the differences are milliseconds that's really interesting i hadn't thought of that at all um so you mentioned seattle and that's where you're training right now would you ever consider doing like training camps in other locations to train specifically for, for events? Or do you think that in Seattle, you can meet most of the demands of your, the races you're prepping for? Yeah, no, I plan to actually go to the mountains at some point to do some training. I think probably more than most, I need that kind of specific camp for this, even though we've spent, you know, probably more time than a lot of people in like Albuquerque or something. It's all been flat running. So like, yeah, uh, I plan to spend some time in Bend. It's not elevation necessarily, but it's got a lot of good trail stuff. And I know we have another portion of our team up there. So I'd like to do some longer camps training there. And I also like, like I said, I love Colorado. And so like, I'd love to go base out of Boulder for a bit, train there, or maybe even go high, go up towards like Crested Butte, go up towards like Buena Vista, Polita, uh, that area, and just drop out and just you know, work, train and gear up for something, you know, especially if it's going to be like a high mountain sort of thing where, you know, you're racing at six plus thousand feet. Wow. That's cool. And like you would do that this summer, for example, if you were getting ready for broken arrow or again, I'm just speaking hypothetically a race like speed goat here in Utah, for example, you would go and do two or three week stretches in places like Colorado or Bend. Yeah, that would, that would be the plan. I mean, we've done, you know, a decent amount of like, we, we, I think that's one perk of like having the track lead into this is like, we've done a decent amount of that altitude stance before. And so like, you know, we've done the blood work going in, coming back down. So like, I have a pretty good idea of like the amount of time I need to spend at altitude to really get like the benefits of like, you know, basically the red blood cell boost is what you go there for. But on top of that, I think like the trail world there's a secondary boost because you're you're living where you can run out your door to train on the terrain that like you're going to be racing on and so yeah i think it's like it's probably the most essential for me earlier in this like trail running uh career or transition because i think just from yesterday my quads were 
my quads were thrashed today, <laughs> running flat. So got my work cut out for me. Yeah. And in, in the trail world, I guess you're learning, um, an eight or a 10 mile run, even it might've taken you 45, 50, 55 minutes on the roads. It can be upwards of two, two and a half hours on the trails, depending on what you're looking at in terms of climbing and descending. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, uh, change in mindset where if you finish a run, that's, you know, hour and 35 minutes and it's nine miles. I'm like, I gotta, I, I gotta switch on thinking about this. Cause that's, you know, like we were going that slow felt so much harder than that. <laughs> what does Brooks support look like through this venture into the trails? Is it correct in saying that you're no longer directly affiliated with Brooks Beeser? Are you still there in some capacity? In my mind, I'm still associated with him, but there hasn't been like an official distinction on that, but I think, yeah, I mean, I'm not training with the team on a daily basis. And so like, no, I think like at this point I am just like part of the Brooks trail team. I don't know if we have an official name for that at this point, but yeah, I still connected with the beasts, but not in the same way. I mean, you know, like I said, the beasts are a very unique group in the sense that like, it, it really is like a college team. So you, you know, get to train together five days a week, if not more. And, you know, so like you're just doing everything together and you've got a great support system built around that from, you know, Danny, who's the head coach and Sarah, who was the massage therapist and just the all encompassing kind of support there. Whereas now I'm still interfacing with a lot of different pieces there, but not tied in, not, you know, specifically part of the team. Would uh, Brooks ever consider doing like a co-located trail team in the same way that they have the beasts? I think they would consider it. And I know they've, you know, they've sponsored a handful of athletes in Bend and a handful of athletes in Seattle here now yeah. for, for a while. I think there's other challenges beyond just the sponsor from my very limited time in the trail world here. I think a lot of trail athletes tend to, for better or worse, you know, be a little bit older and have an ingrained like routine with either their career or family mm. or just like how they operate. And so not to say that you couldn't still build a team, but, you know, the beast team, you can do some other things on the side, but for the most part, like that it's like all encompassing. So it's like, if it's like, Hey, we're going to altitude in Albuquerque next week. It's like, you're going, you know? So it's like, it's a bit, I think, you know, it could happen in the trail world, uh, but it might have to, you know, it, it does require a bit of like upfront communication and strategizing around how that would actually be set up. This idea of trail running teams is one of my favorite topics to talk about. And I think you're one of the best people to talk about it with, because you have the experience being a part of a pro team in another area of running, and maybe we can just dive into it. And I'll ask you first, what was it like being on the Brooks Beasts team from a day-to-day -day standpoint? Like if you were plotting out what like a typical day looked like getting ready for some marquee event on your schedule, what were you doing from like sunup to sundown? Uh, yeah, like we, you know, uh, we met basically Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, uh, we, you know, worked out Tuesday, Friday, long run on Sunday. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, we met at 10 AM for practice. We had, you know, we'd see so you, you wanted to, not that you need to meet at 10 a.m. to maximize sleep, but I think, you know, we do have some younger people that were coming out of college. And so people's sleep schedules are different. And so like, you know, meet at 10 to one, avoid, you know, traffic in Seattle, but two, just to allow people like the opportunity to fully maximize sleep, get up when you can, you know, it's like we had a nutritionist who helped maximize what you were eating on your workout days. Uh, one of the big things he always talked about was like, pancakes was a big pre-race meal, uh, mainly because of the carbohydrates in it without having a ton of protein or sorry, a ton of fiber, uh, in it. And so it's like, yeah, you'd get up, you'd have your pancakes, you'd, you know, hit coffee for me. And then it's mm. like, you meet the team 
practice at 10 a.m you know for if we're up in albuquerque which we, where we spent a lot of time it's like you got a 30 minute drive so you're driving to the track get there you know you may be rolling out some people will meet up our massage uh, therapist was with us full time so she's at the track you know a handful of people maybe see her beforehand to get some treatment yeah um, or just to get some kind of mobilization stuff done otherwise people are rolling out whatever and then you know it's like you do the workout, which typically could take anywhere from two to two and a half hours between, you know, warm up, main part of it, cool down, doing a little bit of treatment at the track after. And then typically we'd go straight to lifting. Uh, you maybe eat a snack on the way there, but you know, then you go to the gym and lift on a workout day for about an, you know, for me, it was maybe 45 minutes, but some people going as long as like an hour 15 to maybe hair over that. And so like, yeah, you just end up getting back home probably like at 3 PM, you know, 3.30 on one of those days after maybe you, you probably have a snack and you eat like a 3 PM lunch or something. <laughs> and then you've got like a lot of people take a quick nap. Some people will double back on workout days, even for like an easy shakeout at night. And it's like you cook dinner and you know, it's a lot about recovery then you know, maybe people are norm attacking or rolling out at the house and then you're going to bed and restarting the next day. And so it's like, you know, very easy to use up an entire day, just running, eating, recovering when you're putting like as much as you can into kind of each of those steps. So I was just going to ask, even on the non-workout days, for example, did you feel like there were enough elements of training that added up to a full day? Or were there moments where you felt like there was a lot of free time? There's definitely moments where you think that there's a lot of free time, you know, and I, I did some part-time work while I was training, but it needed to be flexible. Uh, and, you know, I think for us, like particularly Wednesdays and Saturdays were the big days where you, you ran on your own or you could set your own schedule uh, and you just had one easy run. So you basically, you know, it was like an hour of training. And so those were the days where it's like, yeah, you felt like you had a lot of time to like reset, but you also ended up like shopping or whatever for the week or getting things done to kind of prep for the rest of the week on those days. What did you see as the pros and the cons of the overall lifestyle? Like looking back? Yeah, I think, uh, the massive pros are just being around the team and having a bunch of people training for the, you know, the same things you are in like, building confidence off of each other, uh, on a daily basis where, you know, everybody has their ups and downs, but if overall you're in that team environment, like, I think you can see where things are headed a lot better. You can feel more comfortable in what you're doing. If like everybody's taking an easy day, you're okay. Like taking an easy day. And sometimes if you're training alone, it's hard to take an easy day. It's hard without feeling like the rest of the world is getting ahead of you, you know, and then like, I think being able to spend all of the time that you need to on any particular element, like particularly if you're, you're injured or dealing with some kind of like minor ailment, being able to have the time to like really put into that, the energy into that problem. Um, as well as I think like, you know, for me, sleep was one of the biggest things. I think sleep and hydration are two of like the most underrated elements and a lot of my best seasons came when I was sleeping the most. What's, what's a lot? What's sleeping a lot for you? For me, it's only like eight to nine hours, but some people will sleep 10 to <laughs> 10, 10 to 11. You know, for me, like last year, like I would lay in bed longer than I wanted to, but I would, you know, I would sleep basically force myself to stay in bed for nine hours and, you know, wind down and and really focus on recovery because I think if you're trying to ride the line, you are feeling like you're always on that cusp of like potentially breaking down and the way to really make sure that you're not all of a sudden kind of tipping over the edge is getting a lot of sleep. And if you're not at night, you know, taking a nap during the day. And so, you know, specifically in the last year or two, I did, I would nap for an hour plus during the day as well, which is like, crazy for me. I hate napping. And so like, that was like, 
I would prefer not to do that, but I, I do believe in like the benefits of it enough that I, you know, it just made sense if you've got the time. So in the, in, you know, like, I think the downsides are is like the biggest downside is you can like, you can't focus too much on the details and like, uh, miss out on even just some of the most basic elements. Sometimes it's like, mm-hmm. you're focusing on all these things that are maybe the last 1% and just miss out on maybe that big chunk that's actually going to get you most of the way to being where you want to be on a start line. And you can just overthink, honestly, you, when you're just, when you got your own thoughts that much of the day to really, uh, you know, play around with in your own head, I think you end up like, you can end up tending to overthink kind of certain elements of what you're doing. So, well, it's interesting. There's very few athletes on the trail side for a lot of reasons that aren't full-time. There's a handful. I think Courtney DeWalter is one athlete that does it full-time. Jim Walmsley's another generally very few and far between. The biggest reason that I hear is there's this fear that if you get injured, for example, that you wouldn't be able to mentally cope with your one thing every day being stripped out from under you and whether you could deal with the recovery process and how that would affect the rest of your racing schedule and your status in the sport. So I'm curious, I'm assuming you've had at least a couple injuries in the past and you've been out for some stretches. How did you approach those scenarios and keep the faith and stay true to the craft and not want to like bounce to another profession? Yeah, I had Mostly recently, I had some plantar fasciitis for about a year and a half uh, from, gosh, I think it would have been the start of 2019 through like late or like September 2020 when I ended up getting PRP on it. Uh, And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's definitely a mental grind, you know, when you're injured and I had a lot of roller coasters through that where things were going well and I could still train through it a lot of the time, but like, it's always just nagging in the back of your mind to like sometimes where I did just specifically take time off or was just biking. For me, it was like, you know, a lot of it was just trying to channel that energy somewhere else. And so I've never really cared about, uh, like Strava segments or anything like that on running, but like you know, with cycling, uh, when I was cross training, it was like, yeah, that motivated me. Like I'd go find some Strava segments and try to go hammer as hard as I could or whatever, but, you know, just trying to like find other ways to like be engaged and competitive outside of running. And I know sometimes like you can't even cycle, you know, like you, you can either maybe swim or you just have to have time completely off. And in those moments, like finding something mentally, to focus on whether it's like a project or like, you know, starting to think about like different career stuff or something like that, like outside of running has been helpful for me because the more you dwell on it, the more, you know, sometimes you can just really put yourself in a dark place uh, and start to feel a bit overwhelmed that you're losing time and uh, fitness on everyone. And, you know, how are you ever going to get back to competing with these people that are putting six months of training on you that yeah. you're never going to get back. Do you think that looking back, you had a competitive advantage being a full-time runner, or do you think that those benefits are somewhat negligible compared to someone that's like also a teacher and they're getting in the same amount of training, but it's in a more compressed part of the day? I think it really varies person to person. I really felt like there were some times where I benefited from being just a runner. Uh, but I've gone back and forth a lot during my career. Like, you know, I, I did, I stayed around Stanford, did the masters and a year of the PhD. And then I coached for a fall there and then, you know, worked for a startup in the Bay for, for some time. So like, and then in the last couple of years, I actually also worked kind of part-time on the side. So like, uh, I've personally gone back and forth because like, I feel like I can get a lot out of it just focusing on running and only being a runner for a period of time. But then I start to get a bit stir crazy and I feel like I need something else to balance it out. Otherwise, yeah, I think there just becomes sometimes I think like I have this like mental curiosity to do something else, but also like you just, you start to get a little stale and also, yeah, you just maybe overthink things a bit too much, you know, just 
being so single-minded for so long. So I, I would say like, sorry, this is like pretty long-winded answer. Oh no, this is great. Question, this is great. But um, I think, you know, there is something to be said for only running and there's a lot that can be gained from that. But uh, there, the other stresses that you have in your life, when you remove those and you go to a race, I think those people, you, the relief that comes in like the fun and excitement that comes of running and going to racing hmm. is like an overwhelming feeling that they can tend to like actually allow you to race better sometimes. Um, or at least that's been my experience. So well, it's one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by the question is in almost every other pro sport, like whether it's football or basketball or soccer, it's almost unheard of for the athletes in that sport to do anything on the side, unless they're like, you know, like a LeBron James and they have some investment portfolio in the off season, but like they're all in like they're in, it's interesting in running and maybe it's, I don't know why the reason is, but you can still, there's great examples on both sides of people who do it full-time that are incredibly successful. And people like, um, I just saw that woman, Kira D'Amato, who was like a real estate agent and she just ran 219 in the marathon. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. I think like it's about finding the job that fits well with running, right? Like, I think it's going to be hard to work a 70 hour a week, like banking or consulting job. But if you can find something that's a bit flexible and something that like, isn't overwhelming as far as like, the energy you need to put in, I think it can be super sustainable because, you know, even if you look at like a LeBron James, you look at some of these like other sports they're doing, you know, they've got all these marketing movie, all these other commitments on the side and little projects that they're trying to do. So like, but they're very flexible in those projects, you know? So I think allowing yourself to have that flexibility or finding a situation where you do, can almost be the perfect setup for some people, at least. Looking back, or at least in this moment, do you recommend it going full-time on running if you have the opportunity? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, like, I think it's a chance to really see how much you can maximize every part of your life towards running and you can see some massive gains quickly. So, you know, if given the opportunity, why not go for it? Well, going back to the Brooks Beasts talk for just a second, you mentioned that you were running with a team, sounds like five days a week plus lifting. Were there any other elements of the team that felt like the college experience where you're like living and breathing the lifestyle, like 24 seven, like living in the dorms together and stuff? Like, were there any other elements of the team that made it feel like that experience, that college experience? Yeah, we, you know, we'd spend probably like three gosh, almost three months a year at altitude camp. And at those camps, we're in a house together uh, with anywhere from like three of us at a ho- in a house at a time to there were times when we went to Flagstaff that I can remember like 12, like men, women, everybody was <laughs> smashed in one house together. And so like that very much feels like, you know, the college vibes. And so you're, yeah, I think you're just kind of like, it's just your group for everything, you know, whether it's running social kind of like all parts of your day is just hanging out with that group of people. And I think that's one thing that, you know, really in college, I think allows people to thrive is when you have that group around you, you can make, it's easier to make some of the right decisions, right? Like if your peer group is the people that are going out and staying out late and, you know, whatever, it's like, it's hard to sometimes be the person that's like, Oh, like I'm going to go home and I always be the one that's a bit lame or doing something else. Whereas like, if you're surrounded by a group of people that like, yeah, you're going to have fun when it's like when the time's right. But like when things are serious in the in season and you're getting ready for a big race, like you're just hunkered down, like a big night might be playing a, a board game and like, you know, maybe you're having like, a board game and drinking a beer after like a big workout day. And like, that's a wild night, you know? So like, but you surround yourself with like people doing the same thing as you. And I think it really helps like everybody reinforcing all a lot of the right decisions. Okay. Side note for a second. Speaking of board games, have you ever played settlers of Catan? Oh, of course. Yeah. Isn't it the best? Like a beer and a game of Catan that at this point in my life is as good as going out to the bars on a Friday night. 
Yeah, yeah, we've uh, played relatively recently, actually, um, for the first time in quite a while. But yeah, there was a time where we played a lot of settlers uh, with the team at Altitude Camp. It's, it's a fantastic game. I get fixated in these crazy strategies, like building longest road and not focusing on like the development cards and building cities and settlements. But anyways, love that game. Sorry, side tangent there. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about is and maybe you don't have insight into this, but maybe you do. So I'll ask, what are some of the conditions that allow for a track or a road running team to form? Because we don't have any yet in on the trails. So I'm curious if there's any lessons that we can pick up from what allowed like the Brooks Beasts, for example, to take off. Yeah, I think uh, you need need a sponsor or a group of sponsors probably willing to put some money into it. But I think you also like more than anything you need, uh, you need probably one person who's willing to like really spearhead the initiative to like build a group, whether that's a coach, whether that's an athlete who can be like this advocate who like goes to the brand or who goes, even if you don't get a brand off the bat, who like can get buy-in from a handful of athletes, because ultimately like if you build a group, you're going to have to get, blind buy-in from at least a a group of small group of athletes to say like, yeah, I want to move to this location or I want to like change my training or my way of life to like, and make probably everyone make some sacrifices to like try to make this group work and to buy into, I think you need, you know, some people might disagree, but I think you need a central coach if you Mm. really have a strong team. And so like, those people have to like agree that like this is a good coach and someone that they all want to work with and are willing to buy into their training philosophy or at least their kind of like approach to things. And that will, you know, I think that will allow you to create like the strongest, most cohesive group that like has the best opportunity to like one, get sponsors, but two, just like be sustainable in the long run. Cause otherwise if everybody has different coaches, it's, it can work, but like ultimately over time, things are going to fragment. It's a lot easier for there to be like issues over who's training is doing what and yeah. like actually matching. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that big one big advocate having a, have a centralized coach and then, you know, ultimately trying to gain some support from at least one major brand. In the case of Brooks Beast, was it a coach that kicked things off or was it a particular athlete that recruited other runners? Uh, as far as uh, my understanding, I think a lot of it. So Jesse Williams, who's the guy who puts on the sound running meets now, uh, mm-hmm. was working at Brooks, and he was a he had been an athlete himself, and like you know was very much like committed to like supporting elites, and so I think he was one of the big drivers for it from the Brooks side to like create that team here in Seattle that was a bit more of like a college uh kind of a college vibe than like some of the other teams and then you know he's good buddies with uh Danny Mackey who is the coach of the beast and I think then Danny really helped like bring the it was Danny's like really I think his first coaching job but he you know had the perspective to at least like understand what it would take to build this group and so those two working together as well as like obviously getting the support of like a handful of like very high up Brooks kind of management, they were, you know, able to like get things going. And I think, yeah, a lot of credit has to go to like Brooks of like just having believing in the vision that Jesse maybe initially had, you know, I think it also helped from our standpoint that the Brooks Hansons group has been around for a while and had a lot of success. And so there was a model that it could work. Um, but still, you know, it, it is a hard thing to start for sure. How important is mission in this whole team formation too? Like I know when I think of like Nike Oregon project, for example, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, we exist to bring medals back to the U S was there some, was there like a similar guiding purpose for you guys every single year? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, on the track, ultimately it is to like bring medals back, <laughs> you know, I think regardless of what your group is like, I think the trail world could be a little bit different because there is a lot of, there's a, at least with my understanding, there's a few different pockets of areas that, you know, you can really focus. Whereas like, 
most track groups in the US, uh, at least on the distance side, it's mm. like the goal is world championships and Olympics, yeah. you know. Uh, but I think, you know, there is like this ultimate bigger goal that like I think helped with Brooks of like, we want to integrate this team into the company and like, uh, you know, resonate with the run happy vibes that Brooks has and, uh, you know, utilize them to like help build our footwear, help uh, improve our apparel. One of the, I think, neatest parts of being on the, the beast team was being in Seattle next to the company and getting to like know a lot of the people in those different roles have an impact on spikes that were being made, have an impact on the shoes that we were coming out with or the, mm. you know, the new elite apparel, apparel kits. Like, I think there's a lot that can be said for those interactions. And I think that's another way that like, hopefully the trail scene, I think could start to think about like having some more groups is, you know, the trail gear apparel footwear is becoming much more important. And so like, they're going to need input from experts at these major shoe brands, apparel brands on how to make that work, you know? And so, yeah, I think that's been neat for, I think the athletes and hopefully useful for the company as well. Man, that's a great take. I think the first part you said with like world championships and medals, the issue in trail running is we don't have an Olympics to refer to. And there's multiple brands that are claiming to be the world championship for all sorts of events. So from like a logic or like a structure standpoint, a logic standpoint, there's a lot of confusion around what athletes should be directing their attention towards and working towards from a competitive standpoint. And that's a whole nother conversation, a whole nother episode. But the latter part you mentioned about representing brand and technology and gear, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Given that you've been embedded in these other running worlds for so long, what has been the perception of trail and ultra running among fellow athletes and what has been their take so far of you making this switch? Uh, yeah, there's not a whole lot of overlap between like trail ultra and the track world. You know, it's like, they're pretty much two completely separate worlds at this point. And so like, yeah, it's been a lot of really like good feedback from like, uh, the beast team and other people that I know and like the, the track world. But I think like just kind of excitement about like the unknown, like, what are you doing? You know, or like, you know, like excited for me, but also just like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know? Cause like, I yeah. don't, there's not really an awareness in the track world as to like, what exactly is trail, you know, is that a, are there 5k trail races? Is there a 25k trail race is yeah. trail only like Western States and like stuff that's like a hundred plus miles. Um, you know, I think, uh, I had like a, a bit of like a, uh <laughs> or just like mind mind blown sort of situation talking to joe the other day and i was you know just asking about some of his races and he's like yeah actually i consider like anything under like two nights of sleep like uh out on the trail is like middle distance <laughs> like so like a 250 miler is like a bit of a mid d race <laughs> and i was like uh well count me in as a sprinter then but like you know, like you forget about, you know, cause he's done some of the FKTs for like, you know, Pacific crest trail and going for the Appalachian trail and stuff like that. And so it's, yeah, it's been, I think a lot of excitement, but like, I think both for me as well as like other people that I know in the track world is like, that's great that you're like committing to, to trail, but like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know? And that's the part that I'm hoping to like help bridge of like, you know, Hey, this, this is a transition that can be made. And then I think you've seen it some with like, you know, Mako was a track guy in college, like Jim Wamsley, I think is probably the most well-known in the U S as like a, a track guy that's gone to trail. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Sage Canaday was also in that kind of realm. And so there is like this building momentum for people who run track in college to go to transition to the trail. But like, uh, I think making that a bit more accessible will allow that transition to happen more often. Um, 
So or at least that's my hope. Yeah. I was just going to ask you, what do you think is hesitating or stopping more runners of your caliber and even earlier in their careers from taking this route? I think the distance, the, the expectation that like the distance is like a hundred miles plus, or like, you know, bare minimum 50 miles plus is like one big barrier entry. If you're a 1500 or even up to 10 K runner in college, like thinking about going, particularly if you're like, you know, if you've done very well and you're talented, like collegiate athlete to say like, okay, now I'm going to just drop all of that, go to a terrain that's completely unknown and at best, like multiply my distance by 20. (laughs) you know like uh it's a hard commitment to make so i think the fact like making awareness of some of the shorter races as well as like i think just seeing some people like jim walmsley do so well at a younger age will be helpful because it does seem like it's always seemed a bit similar to the marathon like the marathon always used to be like you go through college you know after college you'd hit the track. And as you got older, you'd slowly move up in distance until finally you got, you lost all your speed and you moved up to the marathon, you know, not specifically that, but something like that. Whereas like now I think we're seeing, you know, the Molly Seidel's of the world. We're seeing yeah. like a lot more like, you know, Scott Fobble, a lot of like the NAZ elite group, like just like a lot of younger people make the commitment for the, from the marathon or for the marathon who have been good in college. Uh, and I think as trail popularity grows and as like this kind of elite group in the trail world starts to form even more, like, yeah, I think we'll see that more in the trail world too, particularly as sponsors start to put money there because, you know, ultimately money is what draws people at the highest levels. Like is particularly if you're going to, if you're trying to make a living from this or like make this a career, yeah. You need to find ways to make money. So, well, and I don't know the answer to this question, but it's something interesting to speculate on. And that is if you're, for example, a 213 male marathoner, or you are a 247 female marathoner, my instinct would tell me you could actually probably make, if your goal is to make a living as a runner, you could probably have better chances making a living on the trails than on the roads. And there'd be more brands willing to yeah, give you a contract just based on that foot speed and potential that could translate to ultras. So that might be an interesting selling point is if you're right on that cusp of like truly elite, maybe you go try out the trails because there's just lower barrier to entry and competition and you'll be like a bigger fish in a smaller pond. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely something to that. I mean, even in, I think one one issue even in the track world is there's, you know, track athletes tend to have agents communicate with the shoe brands. You typically don't communicate with the brands directly as an athlete. And so like when an athlete graduates from college, it's very unknown, even for the people at the top end of the sport as like, as to like, what's next, like, what do I do? What are the next steps? And so like, there's enough people in the track world and it's happened enough now that like you do have connections and people that can help you navigate that. But like, I think in the trail world, it just, the ecosystem's not built out enough. So like I can see if I was coming out of college and trying to figure out how to do that, I don't know where you'd start, you know, because most agents don't deal with trail stuff and most brands, you don't even know who to start by emailing. You don't know what to ask for, you know? So like, I think one major step, and it goes back to what you've been saying with groups would be if these brands or if there's brands that start to really say like, Hey, I want to throw money into trail. And I think Brooks is starting to do that with our group here, but say like, Hey, we're going to put a lot of money behind the trail team. We're going to like make this work. And we're going to try to start like make it a viable option for people so that they know it's there and try it's something to shoot for and aspire to coming out of school. Then I think you will start to get, better and better athletes you might not get like you know the 10k ncaa champ right off the bat but 10 years from now you might you know 
we love talking business opportunities on this show too, in the running space. And that's a good one is finding a way to be like the intermediary between uh, trail brands and these somewhat marquee athletes coming out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's probably a lot of people in the trail world that could, I think trail athletes from what I've seen so far, and maybe just watching Mako uh, are very savvy <laughs> in being able to like, garner sponsorships and stuff like that and actually very much better than track athletes at marketing themselves and so like i think there is an opportunity here for more sponsorship for like gaining more exposure with some of these brands because you know there's a growing group that's interested in trail running in the general population and there's a growing group of athletes that are very good at marketing themselves and Ultimately, that's that's what this is, is marketing. That That's a fantastic point. And I would also just add that one of the reasons why I'm so bullish on trail running teams is because I look at teams like Brooks Beast and Bowerman and Hoka Naz Elite. And because you're in that team environment, it's just easier to create content for social media and YouTube and everything that the brand needs. Like It almost takes care of itself because you have a coach or some assistant who can snap photos, take videos catch the just all the key moments like that's something that's missing in this side of the sport and like we already have the athletes that are savvy individually and you bring it all together in a team setting it's probably dynamite yeah i mean the one well one of the many things that i think the trail athletes have going for them is the scenery and like the races and like the stuff that people are doing is just incredible and so like i'm just you know, as someone who hasn't been in the trail world, just absolutely fascinated following along with like these races, like, you know, whether it's the Western States and like what people are putting their bodies through. And like, I think you can, you can live this experience with the athletes a lot more in a trail race than you can in like a track race. It's like four minutes and it's over. I think there's a lot of really cool parts about the track, but the trail is like, as a follower, you can really like feel like you're there with them. And so like, you know, even following along with like, um, I bl- I'm blanking on the race that's happening right now, but the crazy one where you grab, you gather oh, Barkley, Barkley, Barkley. Yeah. Like, you know, I've been following that a bit and it's like, it's crazy, you know, like, um, and it's super interesting to just see what people, what extremes are going to. And like, the elements out there. And, you know, I think some of those battles is like what people want to see and ultimately what sells for these brands. So yeah, I think there's a huge opportunity. Let's go to the lightning round here. First question. Is there a greater than 35% chance that you will do either the Western States 100 or ultra trail du Mont Blanc at some point in your career? I think it's lower. Have there been any failures or apparent failures during your running career or in some other area of life that have actually set you up for later success? Yeah. Uh, first one that comes to mind is I got out kicked every time my sophomore year of high school and cross country by the same guy, uh, to the point that we stopped and walked one time, uh, and then, uh, he still wouldn't lead. So I took off and sure enough, he out kicked me again. Uh, and, and, you know, that next year, the entire year all I worked on was my kick. And that was my strength for the next five years. <laughs> what is something you used to believe strongly about running that you have recently changed your mind about? Um, sleep. I think that was, that's one. Uh, never didn't think it was that important, but in the last couple of years really yeah really changed my mind on it what was the last good book movie or podcast you consumed and what was good about it uh let's see other than other than yours this podcast uh well i'll throw i'll throw one out there for um josh and dave on the team sit and kick i i did listen to some of that yesterday uh, their podcast those are two guys in the beast but green lights by matthew mcconaughey i listened to that uh recently and i think there's yeah i like him a lot more after listening i liked him before but it's a super interesting book if you haven't read or listened to it 
I've listened to it and he's on my narration Mount Rushmore alongside uh, Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Last question. If you could put a message on a billboard for all to see, what would it say and why? Go to the mountains. (laughs) Uh, I just think, I think being in nature and just like exercise, there's just so many wellness benefits that come from that mentally, physically, everything else. So Garrett, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I think I speak for a lot of folks when I say we are excited about your entry into the trail scene. And I know I will be following your race schedule closely and maybe we can chat again at some point in the future. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me on. Hey folks, thanks as always for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, all I ask is that you give it a share on your social media platforms and that you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Until next time, this is The Single Track and I am your host, Finn Melanson.